Our reading is from 2 Kings, chapter 6, um, reading from verse 8. In the Church Bibles, it's on page 373. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on this, the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he, went, he, then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the king of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them, so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Phil, let me pray for you as you bring us God's word. Heavenly Father, we just do pray that as we now listen to your words, as we meditate on this passage from your words, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be ready to listen to you. We pray that you would bless the preparation that Phil has done looking at the things that you have said, the things that you've recorded for us about you. And we pray that our hearts and minds would be ready to receive them. We pray that he would be speaking your words to us now and that we'd be ready to change, to become more and more like our Lord Jesus through the words that we hear this morning. 
We pray this all through your son's holy name. Amen. Thanks, Rui. Well, I'm going to start with a couple of pictures on the screen behind me. Here we go. You ready for this? No, not that one. There we go. A couple of pictures. What do you see when you look at those pictures? On one level, both are landscape photos. I hope you're able to see that. Uh, but. On the other, there's also two faces looking back at you. You can work that out in the left-hand picture when you see the tree on the left shapes the side of a young girl's face, and the clusters of branches about a third of the way down are her eyes. The second picture is a bit harder to, to, to see, but um, if you focus on the chimneys in the very middle of the, the photo, the picture, you'll begin to see the image of a man looking back at you. I, I wonder, what do you see? And I start with these uh, pictures because they're a good illustration of how one thing can be viewed in different ways. And in the same way, our passages this morning challenge us to ask a question, what do you see when you look at the world around you? Is the way you view this world shaped by a secular world that we live in, as though God doesn't exist and doesn't matter? Or do you have a spiritual worldview where you see God at work in this world, shaping and guiding all things for his glory? Like the pictures above, we can view the world in two different ways. Now, we saw last week that the idea of take and get and receive was repeated through the passage. And in a similar way, our passage this morning has a repeated theme of look and see and behold running right through it. And what I'd like to do first this morning is quickly skim through the passage to highlight that and then look at the passage section by section afterwards to see how, what, what it teaches us. And I'm going to use um, the English Standard Version, um, which is a different translation to the one we normally use because it's, better, uh, it's, better, it's a better translation at picking up those details of this passage. Now, now just, to, just to reassure you, in my personal quiet times, I, I use the NIVs that we've just been reading from, the, the NIV version that we, we've just been reading from. I use it because it's a faithful translation, and it's quite easy to read. It's got a nice kind of balance between faithfulness and easiness of reading. Um, but in, in, my, in my Bible study, as I come to prepare uh, 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 what, what I preach on, I use my, my trusty ESV. It's black, so it's got to be good. Um, and, um, and what it is, the ESV is, is more faithful uh, to the original languages that were, were originally written, Hebrew and Greek normally. Uh, but that obviously makes it harder to read. So what the NIV fails to do is it, follows, it fails to follow the passage in a look-see-behold way, but the ESV does pick it up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through it in my ESV, um, and then we'll go back to the NIV. Okay, are we, all, are we all there? Okay, right. So verse 8, from t 8 to 10, they kind of set up the story. So the Arameans are at war with Israel. The king of Aram is trying to capture the king of Israel. But Elisha keeps warning the king of Israel of the Arameans' plans. Then in verse 11, the king of Aram, or Syria, as the ESV put it, begins to rant because he thinks someone is spying on him. And this is what he says, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? There it is, I've managed to get it in ESV on the screen behind me. Will you not show me? 
He's frustrated by the fact that someone keeps ruining his ambush plans. And then one of his servants shows him what's going on. Elisha the prophet is given knowledge by God that protects the king of Israel. So the king of Syria decides to do something about Elisha, verse 13. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told, behold, he's in Dothan. Can you see that kind of those behold, look, see themes coming out? And it's added to here by those commands, behold and see. And then playing on this growing theme, there's a lovely, you know, I always love the writer of Two Kings because he's so sarcastic. He's so ironic because he describes that the king of Aram gets his bunch of soldiers together as if he can sneak up on God at night. He sends them in a night raid. Ha ha, thinks the king of Aram, I've got him. As if God doesn't know, as if he's going to catch God when he's clocked off or asleep at the wheel. The writer is saying it's sarcastic, it's ironic. These guys just don't get who they're dealing with. The story continues in verse 15. The the servant gets up, pulls the curtains. He beholds the Syrian army. He's afraid of what he sees. And Elisha reassures him. And then he prays this in verse 17. Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's a kind of climactic verse of this whole theme of beholding and seeing and revealing, and it's backed up by verse 18 that tells us Elisha prays exactly the opposite would happen to the Syrians, and the Lord strikes them with blindness, can't see. Then in verse 20, Elisha leads the Arameans into the city of Samaria, and verse 20 says this, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Look, 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 behold, see, see, see. And then just when you get to that point, and you think it's all over, You have verse 21, the king of Israel responding to the armies of Syria at his mercy. It's a shocking verse. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, can I strike them down? Can I kill them? So the writer's asking the the original readers right through this passage, what do you see? What do you see when you look at this world? What do you see? Um, Do you see a world full of fear and confusion, or do you see the hand of God lovingly shaping this world for his purposes? What do you see? And I realize that's difficult for many of us here this morning to see or understand for ourselves. Some of us are going through awful experiences. I, I know for those of us watching online, I know some of you are really struggling with what you see in this pandemic. Some of us, even this week, have taken the biggest hits of our lives, and we're shaken by them, and we're wondering, can we see God in it? Some of us are confused because of the worldview around us is so different to the worldview of the Christian. On top of that, sometimes it's it's so hard to see the hand of God working behind the sinfulness of men. So we need this passage this morning because it encourages us to see the world through a different lens, in a different way, to look at the world as the prophet Elisha 
saw the world. And the biggest invitation of this passage is to behold, to get alongside the prophet Elisha and behold, to see, so that word means to step back in wonder at the work of the hand of God, the unseen hand of God behind everything and take courage and rejoice. Now, I realize that was probably the longest introduction you'll ever hear from me, but I hope it lays a foundation for how we understand this passage, how we see and read this passage. What do you see when you look at the world? And we're going to look at that question in three different ways. The first is, what do you see? Worrying international crises or God's controlling hand? The first section of the passage from 8 to 14 tells the story of how the king of Aram plans against the king of Israel and is continually frustrated by God. And rather than seeing the futility of fighting God, he doesn't know when to quit. And in spite of everything he's been told about the power of God and the power of Elisha to see his plans, what he does is he changes his plans from going after the king to going after Elisha. It's kind of like you know, I'm going to stop chasing the mouse, I'm going to start chasing an elephant. It just doesn't make sense. He's blind to it. And it's kind of, we're meant to kind of see it and kind of go, have a little bit of a chuckle. It really is quite funny. He's blind to God's power. And one of the reasons for that blindness is because in those days it was common to regard the power of a god as equal to the power of the nation. So one nation would be defeated by another, and not only would that defeated nation be considered weak, but its gods would be considered weak as well. And generally, the defeated nation would then begin to worship the gods of the more powerful nation because the logic just followed that if there's a powerful nation, it's got to have powerful gods, and therefore they're more worth worshipping than the gods we used to bow down to. An all-conquering army was naturally backed by all-conquering gods. That's the culture that was, was around at the time. So Aram and Israel were at war, and it seems as though Aram could invade at will, and the war was at the stage where the king of Israel was in danger of being captured. But in his blindness, the frustrating thing for the king of Aram was that the weak Israel's God was not reading the script. Israel's God was proving to be more powerful than Israel as a nation. It's just not cricket. It's not normal. It's irritatingly frustrating. And what the writer is showing the reading, reader is the, the blindness of the king of Aram to God's power. This, this writer wants us to see the king of Aram for who he is. He, the, the, the king seems so powerful, but for all his show and power, he's a foolish man because he can't see when he needs to stop. He's blind to the power of Israel's God. And it's that picture that he's painting. It's the folly of looking. It's, uh, sorry. It's the folly of, of looking at something that's right in front of you that seems so powerful. And rather than bowing to it, you actually keep fighting it. You keep fighting it. And it's a theme that runs right through the Bible. In, in Isaiah 40, verse 21 to 23, for example, the, the, um, Isaiah says this, Do you not know? 
Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? It's question after question. Are you so thick? Do you not get it? God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers to him. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. That is our God. And it's been a message since the beginning of the universe. Isaac Newton himself said, there is enough evidence for the power and wonder and might of God in the human thumb. You don't need to look beyond your very own hand to see the power and might and glory and wonder of the living God. Are we not so thick to see that? I don't know whether that made sense, but I hope you get the meaning of it. God is sovereign. And the writer is saying, come on. In international affairs, when kings are fighting kings and trying to get the better of God's people, do we not see it? God is sovereign and king and mighty and powerful. And in that sense, as those original readers in their context, which was a dreadful context, by the way, were picking up these words and reading them for themselves, here's the encouragement. God is sovereign over kings and nations and princes and powers, and he sets the heavens, and he sets a canopy over the universe. Therefore, how can he not be in control of your circumstances? And for us today, my word, we look at the international circumstances that have suddenly hit us, even in the last few weeks, and, and it might seem really scary, mightn't it? Some of us in business might be really frustrated at the paperwork caused by Brexit. Others might be concerned about how much petrol is in the tank and how are we going to get to work and back tomorrow, let alone to the manor this afternoon? On an international level, we might be wondering whether God sees this haulage crisis, whether God sees the gas crisis, global warning, warming, the pandemic, the panic buying, the inability of our government to strike a trade deal with anyone, the falling value of the pound, the picture might worry us. And we might find ourselves like those original readers worrying so much over the things that we see in front of us that we begin to wonder at the power of God. But what do you see? Here's one worldview the king of Aram's worldview. God is just a little puppet of a kingdom. If that kingdom's weak, then God is weak. And so it follows. But that is not our God. That's what the writer is saying. God is not weak. He's not surprised. He's not asleep at the wheel. Which means that rather worry about international circumstances. Behold, our God. Behold our sovereign Lord who sets a canopy above the nations, who has designed the very beautiful control of the thumb on your hand. How is he not in control of international affairs? The second question that um, the writer wants us to ask is this. What do you see? God's enemies. 
or God's armies, God's enemies or God's armies. So the writer goes on to describe how uh, God allows Elisha and his servant a kind of behind-the-scenes glimpse into another dimension that God has complete control of. So the servant gets up in the morning, he opens the curtains, it's a beautiful day, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, but there just happens to be an enormous army camped outside the doorstep making polite inquiries for the prophet Elisha. And yet what he sees does not reflect the reality going on in the spiritual world. So look at the end of verse 15. Oh my Lord, says the servant, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And it's one of those events in the Bible where the miracle is teaching a spiritual truth. It's not normative, by the way. We won't all wake up tomorrow morning and see the horses and chariots of Israel surrounding this church. God is showing this faithful servant a spiritual reality behind what we see in the physical world. And whereas the enemies of God are blind to this and will be made blinder to them, the faithful servant is given a greater insight into spiritual reality and the heavenly realm. I, I, I love, sorry, I'm, I'm slightly off piece, but I love this passage because what you get is when Elisha prays for God's people that they may see, you have this glorious revelation of the power and the might of God's hand and God's servants, the chariots of, God, of fire around Israel. And when Elisha prays for God's enemies to open their eyes, what they see is the dreadful, dreadful danger before them. Isn't that amazing? Open their eyes, Lord. Open the eyes of the faithful, spiritual people who follow you, that they may see the wonder and might of the armies of God surrounding them. Open their eyes, Lord. Open the eyes of the enemy of God, that they may see the dreadful circumstance that they are in the hands of the living God, and they need his mercy. Open their eyes. Every situation has a spiritual dimension to it. Do not believe otherwise. Behind the physical, we must trust that God has the spiritual in his hands. So God, throughout the Bible, sends ministering angels... He tells us he sets his angels to guard over us. He sends his angels as messengers. He tells us there is a raging battle going on behind the scenes that we cannot see and cannot influence unless we are on our knees. And notice that right through this passage, it is when Elisha prays that God responds. I don't know how it works, but prayer is God's means by which he will work his purposes in this world. I don't know how it works, but that is just what God has ordained. And notice that Elisha understands this spiritual warfare as well. He says, oh Lord, open the eyes of the servant. I know what's going on here, but my servant needs to see it. And it's by prayer that God graciously works. And that's why this passage is full of powerful prayer to make 
the point. There is a raging battle going on around us. And we can only influence it on our knees. And as we read this passage, I hope, therefore, we can take heart. Because it shows us this unseen truth for all who believe and trust in God. That we take part in this this spiritual battle on our knees. And it forces us to ask that question, what do we see when we pray? Do we see this invitation by God? Look, you know, there is a spiritual reality. You can take part in it if you pray. And when you pray, you do. Will you do that? As God gathers his people to the church prayer meeting, will we see it not just as another meeting in the diary, but as an important part of the spiritual warfare of our community of believers? And block it out in the diary and say, I know I struggle to pray out loud. I know I struggle to pray even personally, but I will go because I understand the importance of prayer as a part of the spiritual battle in this world. Will we pray for our children rather than worry about our children? Will we pray for our non-Christian friends rather than see it as our, our, um, our responsibility to kind of tell them about Jesus? Pray for them first. Fight the battle on your knees and see the truth of this spiritual reality that the horses and chariots of Israel, the armies of the living God surround his people and we, 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 we involve ourselves in that spiritual work as we pray. Don't lose heart, my brothers and sisters. See the spiritual reality behind what we see in the physical world. And even more, when we're struggling in our personal daily spiritual battles, open your eyes. Open your eyes. The chariots of fire surround you. They really do. When sin is overcoming you, Turn your mind to the chariots of fire. Do you see the enemies of God? Do you see the sin that is so, so enslaving you to despondency? Open your eyes to the chariots of fire and pray, my brothers and sisters. This is a power that we have been given by God's grace. And the mystery of God is this. I don't know how it works. But we have such a grace of God to bow the knee and see God at work in us and through us as we pray, as we cry out to the one who commands the armies of heaven. What do you see? What do you see? And the last point is this. What do you see? A world of opportunity for selfish gain or a world of opportunity for sacrificial grace? Elisha has prayed to God that the army might be blinded and he leads them into the city of Samaria and then he prays once more that this time the Syrians might see and as they emerge from what can only be described as a stupor, what happens next is surprising for two reasons. The first Surprise is the bloodthirsty response of the king. And the second surprise is the unexpected grace of the prophet. It is surprising, isn't it? 
Let me read this last section again. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? You might imagine the horror of those soldiers as they realized their situation. Their eyes are truly opened to the, to the danger that they're in. And at the very least, they would have expected you know, rough treatment or slavery or, or imprisonment. And it seems as though the king of Israel has exactly that on his mind. He says that again, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? <laughs> We've got them now. It's kind of like ridiculous. Again, that humor of the writer. But Elisha speaks the word of God. Do not kill them. And he prepared a great feast for them. And after they finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. Wow. Wow. That is completely unexpected, isn't it? Those soldiers, those Aramean soldiers, deserve punishment. They they get the opposite. They deserve imprisonment or in, in slavery. But they get freedom. They deserve to be treated like dogs, and yet they're treated like kings. They're sent back to Aram, well-fed and free. And so rather than being a record of merciless revenge over helpless enemies, this becomes one of the most stunning pictures of grace in the Bible. Read it again, brothers and sisters. Read it 10 times before the end of the week. It's the most stunning picture of grace. It's a picture of God's mercy to all who were once his enemies. How can I say that? Well, like those soldiers, we are all born sworn enemies of the God of Israel. The Bible tells us that by nature, every one of us are God's enemies in our souls. Our, the makeup of our souls is that we want to be in charge and not God that makes us his enemies. And like those Syrian soldiers, we deserve his wrath. Like those soldiers standing helpless before the king of Israel, everyone will stand helpless before God, knowing that it is right for God to treat us as his enemies because we've lived our lives treating him as our enemy. And yet, rather than treating us as we deserve, God shows us grace. And this is where the passage is so relevant to us. The Bible tells us that God is gracious and compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness. He is the God who shows mercy to rebels and grace to the undeserving and friendship to his enemies like those soldiers. We were once outsiders and cut off from him by our own evil actions. Like those soldiers, we have all fallen utterly short of his standards of obedience and love. But rather than treating us as we deserve and judging us for our sin, God has sent Jesus to take our place instead. In other words, God has sent Jesus to take the hit for us. You see, this is grace. Someone has to take the hit. Someone has to, that's justice, isn't it? 
That's why we punish our children. When our children steal the cookies, someone's going someone's to go cookieless, aren't they? So punishment is all about helping them see the pain of cookielessness. In the same way, those soldiers invade. They've been evil. They've been awful. They deserve to take a hit. Who takes the hit? Israel takes the hit. Not only do they take the hit of this awful Aramean army invading the country, but they get out the best of the best of food and lay it in front of those soldiers and take the financial hit of feeding them on top of all the evil that they have done. Do you understand what grace is now? Why? Because God the Son has come into this world and he's taken the hit. In other words, he stands in our place before God and he bears the wrath of God for our sin. He takes the hit. And not only does he take the hit, but he gives us his righteousness, which means it's almost as though he takes off his robes, how God sees him and puts them around us so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfectness of Jesus around us. So as Jesus dies on the cross, he strips himself bare and bears the wrath of God. And he gives us his righteousness. And it's a double hit. He's treated as sin on the cross. And gives us his righteousness. There is the double hit. That is grace. So rather than being cast out and judged as we wear the robes of Christ and his righteousness before God, here is the promise that one day we will sit around the table of God feasting just like those Syrian soldiers. Do you see the enormity and the wonder of grace? We cannot earn it. We cannot demand it, we can simply go to the cross as enemies of God and plead for God's mercy and he will give us grace, I promise you. And listen, if you're not sure what will happen to you when you stand before God, then can I encourage you, come on Christianity Explored, there are loads of leaflets out in the foyer, grab one of these and take the details, because it's a course that simply walks through the book of Mark, which is a biography of Jesus. And it gives you a chance to see who Jesus is for yourself. If you've not, if you've not looked at Jesus for yourself, then come on that course, please do. Join us. There's a number of people already coming. There's plenty of space for more. Will you come and find out about Jesus, the King who shows us grace? And for those of us who are Christians here this morning, surely this story teaches us about the opportunities to show grace in our time. We do that by telling people about Jesus. We do that by opening our eyes to the horses and chariots of Israel. We do that by modeling his love and care for one another because we've been loved and cared for by Christ himself. 
But I also hope that we can stop and just see, just see the horses and chariots of Israel, those chariots of fire, and see the wonder of the grace of God lavished upon us through Jesus Christ and marvel. Marvel at the love of Christ and turn again and say to him in prayer, O Lord Jesus Christ, open my eyes that I may see, that I may see the chariots of fire, but that I may see the power and wonder and love of the grace of the living God. My brothers and sisters, what do you see this morning? What do you see? Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, it is the most challenging prayer, but we pray it this morning that you would open our eyes. Father God, that you would open our eyes to the chariots of fire that surround your people, protecting them, helping them, comforting them, leading them. Lord God, even more, we ask that you would open our eyes to your grace. May we be so astounded and blown away that more and more we want to immerse ourselves in that grace, through obedience, through prayer, through the simple act of marveling at the Savior who died for us and rose again in glory and victory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Open our eyes.